Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. For the past few weeks, if you are new or visiting, uh, we've been looking at the life of David. We're beginning to look at the life of David. And one of the ways that we started was to first look at all the prophecies to whom David points. Because that's going to allow us or enable us to see the importance of all the narratives of David's life. And this is a famous passage. Um, if you've ever read the book of Micah or the a prophecy from the, book, from the prophet Micah, which Micah predicts the coming of the Messiah, the coming king, this ruler in Israel who will be born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. Today we're going to look, we're going to meditate on what's intriguing about this coming king, this coming ruler, this Messiah. Because on one hand, he is from old, it says. He is of the ancient times. But on the other hand, he says he will stand as a shepherd. He is the coming king. He's coming in the future. So Jesus is this once and future king. And uh, we learn that Jesus will bring, oh, we've been learning that Jesus will bring courage to people who are in fear. We learn that Jesus is the returning king. He is the redeeming king. He's going to bring justice into the world. But today we're going to learn that he is the ancient and future king. Three points. Always we have three points, or most of the time. Uh, what does it mean that he is the ancient king? What does it mean that he is the future king? How do we make him our present king? Cute, right? Ancient king, <laughs> ancient king, future king, present king. First, we're going to look at the ancient king. Jesus is the ancient king, the king of old. The passage says his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He's born in Bethlehem, but he's from of old. How does that happen? Legends, the legends of the world are filled with accounts, filled with stories of great kings who used to rule but will return. When the king was once here, the kingdom was fine, but now the kingdom is awful. The most famous of those, if you look, especially from the European, American times, it's King Arthur, the story of King Arthur, the legend. The king is not here, but someday he will return, we say. When's this king going to return again? When will he come back? Now, literary critics in the 20th, 21st centuries, they absolutely dislike how these types of legends have persisted. The concept of the fairy tale has persisted over history. The legend of good versus evil, the legend of magic and supernatural forces that abound, the concept of this hero or this prince that's going to come back and save the world and establish his kingdom and rule with justice. They believe that this type of story was not supposed to, it's supposed to die out. It's not supposed to last. But it hasn't died out. Literary critics today are absolutely annoyed by that. Why hasn't it died out? And J.R.R. Tolkien has an answer to that. 
He knew more about legends of the world than anyone alive, at least in his day. And in fact, he drew on those legends to write his own, The Return of the King. When Tolkien first wrote the material, he attempted to regenerate the concept of the modern fairy tale. And literary critics in the 50s and 60s, they absolutely despised it. They actually wrote lots of stuff about it. They said it's going to die an early death because we're modern people today. We've outlasted. This stuff is outdated. This stuff is fake. He said, you know, because we know today that good and evil are relative. That's what these modern critics are saying. There's no such thing as absolute good. There's no such thing as absolute truth. There's nothing beyond that. They believe that these types of stories are really just intended for children. And so modern grown-ups, you know, they want something dark. They want something ambiguous. The problem is the dark, the ambiguous, the confusing, these books don't really sell that well. If you watch movies today, to this day, modern stories that are dark and confusing, ambiguous, great among the critics, great in the Academy, great among the Oscars, but they don't sell very well, not very widely received. It's this concept of the fairy tale, the fantasy that's persisted. Why do these things have so much power? I'm going to tell you a story. In the late 20s, J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Return of the King, he's a Christian. He was a professor at Oxford. Brilliant man. He was friends with an atheist professor from Magdalen College, not too far away. They would go on these routine walks every day. That atheist professor was named C.S. Lewis. On one of those routine walks, Tolkien was explaining, he was trying to explain to C.S. Lewis the cosmic significance and the fact that Lewis loved these stories. He loved these legends and these fairy tales. Now, Lewis was an atheist. He was a modern man of his day. He believed that everything was a product of natural selection. Everything was an accident, and yet he was moved. He was moved by these stories. We, today, are moved by these same stories. Why? Tolkien's reasoning was this. Even though you're a modern man, these stories, they're not true in the sense that, in fact, they're not factually or historically true. They're not real in that sense. But they're getting at underlying realities, underlying truth. All the stories say, for instance, a couple things. One, that the world today is under a curse, is under an evil spell, an evil sorcerer. It's one of the underlying truths. And that the problems today, that they cannot be dealt with by education or science or technology or policy. Why? Because if you think in our era today, our era, we just exited out of an era where the greatest technologists, the greatest scientists, the greatest artists and educators, they actually were responsible for the most destructive era in human violence in history. And so we know that the problems today cannot be dealt with by education or by science or technology or policy. Now, secondly, these stories point to the fact that the physical world is not all that there is, that there is a greater depth to reality. There is the natural, but there's also the supernatural. There is the physical, but there's also the spiritual. And thirdly, the concept of sacrificial love. It always gets us. A sacrificial love to save, to rescue, like, a, you know, the, the, the damsel in distress, the person's unable to save themselves. Tolkien says to C.S. Lewis, that's why these stories move us. And Lewis responds, he says, you know, that's very interesting, it's a very interesting theory, 
But all these old myths, all these old stories, they're lies. They're not true. In fact, he actually said, myths are lies, though breathed through silver. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, these myths, these stories, they're wonderful. They inspire wonder, inspire courage. They kind of make you want to be a better man sometimes, but they're not true. And then Tolkien responds and he says, they're not all lies. Because in fact, the world is under a curse. The high king does send a prince that will restore things. God sends his son into the world, and he's born in the most unlikely place. He's the guy at the back of the pub, like Aragorn, right? He's born in the most unlikely place, a manger. Very unassuming. But he takes on evil socially. He takes on evil culturally, spiritually. He takes on the oppression in the world. On one hand, the Romans, who are the irreligious people. On the other hand, the Pharisees, who are the religious people. The demons, the supernatural, disease, the storms, the natural. And finally, he goes to the cross, and for the sake of his beloved, his damsel in distress, what does he do? It looks like evil has defeated him, and yet he's raised from the dead. And he brings his people together, and he's renewing them. He's gathering them. He's renewing their lives. He's shaping, he's transforming, and he's restoring the world. Now, C.S. Lewis asks, isn't that just another one of those wonderful stories? And Tolkien responds with this, and this is why it gets us. When we read a modern kind of parable, you know, what's a modern kind of parable today? Cormac McCarthy wrote The Road. Cormac McCarthy, if you read any of his books, um, a lot of it have been turned into great movies, Oscar-winning movies, No Country for Old Men, these modern dark stories. Um, there, there are a number of others, Dennis Lehane, if you've ever read Mystic River, or if you've read Gone Baby Gone, if you've, uh, today, uh, just recently, they came out with the movie The Drop, um, all written by him, Shutter Island. If you read any of these dark stories that critics, literary critics, absolutely love, in the end, after you watch these things or if you read these things, you say, wow, that's really heavy. But when you listen or read or watch a fairy tale, the simplicity of it, the typical aspect, nature of it, it gets you. Why? Because at the very end, we're always moved, we're hoping for, we're anticipating the miraculous grace. J.R.R. Tolkien called that the eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophe. The good catastrophe. The victory coming out of certain death. Victory coming out of impossibility. The jaws of death. Sacrifice. Suffering. And yet there's this grace. And we're getting a glimpse of this very joy beyond the walls of the world. That's what Tolkien said. Lewis thought he first saw that Christianity was really just another story, another one of those uh, fantasy stories until Tolkien explained to him, don't you get it? Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all these stories point. He's the underlying story beneath the story. Now, it's different because this story is not just a story. This is history. The gospel writers, when they were writing, they were writing news. They were writing history. Jesus Christ was indeed born, and yet he will return. He is the ancient king. He is from of old, and yet he was born, and yet he will return. 
he will redeem. This Jesus is the hero in all the stories of heroes that we watch and anticipate. So when people cry, where is this king? Why can't he return? Well, it's because he is the ancient king. And there's this memory trace in our hearts, in our souls. We yearn for that king. We look to it in other people, and we're so often easily disappointed. We look to it in our leaders, and we are so disappointed. We look to it in our parents, and we are so disappointed. In fact, we transpose and superimpose that hope into a job or into a salary or even into our children who are younger. And yet we are so easily disappointed. There's this memory trace in our hearts that we long for this king that will redeem and will restore us. There's this imprint of an ancient and wonderful and great power that will restore us. Everything will be made perfect. This king is coming back. Like in the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Tumnus, the children enter through the wardrobe and they see that everything is frozen. The whole world is under a curse. That's like us. And yet Mr. Tumnus says, but look, the ice is starting to thaw. The ice is starting to melt. The curse is broken. That's Jesus. That's why we love all romantic stories. Look at the great ones, Pride and Prejudice. It's my favorite. If you watch, ever watch Pretty Woman, Beauty and the Beast, you know, if we're just accidents, if we're just chemical accidents that are going to end up in nothingness, then why any of this universally consistent, uh, why is this anything, why is any of these stories, any of these stories universally and consistently important to us? Why are they significance? It's because of the underlying reality. Jesus is the hero that saves the damsel in distress. Out of sheer love, he rescues the woman from danger, from her self-degrading life, and remakes her to be beautiful. Breaks the curse. Jesus is that beautiful prince that the heart wants. He's the beautiful prince that the heart needs. So if you're here longing, if you're still looking, if you're still looking for that role model, if you're still looking for that father, if you're still looking for that perfect person who's going to come and redeem your life once and for all, that perfect love, it's Jesus. And, and uh, so you can't turn aimlessly. If you want to look for an application of that, don't turn aimlessly. Don't turn hopelessly elsewhere. Jesus is the ancient king. And he's been here all along. Look to him. Look to him and what he has promised. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to the church, if you're new to Christianity, just ask what that means. Just ask what it means to look to Jesus. Now, that's what it means when we say that he's the ancient king. Secondly, he's the future king. And when we say that he's the future king, we're saying this. Uh, the text here, it tells us something amazing, especially when we realize that the passage is talking about all the problems that Israel has with Assyria and Babylon. These are the two empires that were up and coming, and they were coming, they're going to run right through Israel here in this text. And Micah here says, do not worry. It's going to happen. But at some point, a ruler will rise up and he will deliver us. He says, you know, verse 1, this is what's going to happen. A siege is laid against us. They're going to strike Israel's ruler, ruler on the cheek with a rod. But out of you, verse 2, will come for me one who will be ruler, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will be from the ancient but, verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock. 
He will stand. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. That's what it says here in the text. He says, don't worry, it's going to happen. But at some point, a ruler in Israel will rise up, and he will deliver us. Now, of course, when you first read this, the first impression, and their first impression, those who read this in their day, they thought that this will be a descendant of David who will rise up in Bethlehem, become king, and is going to make Israel strong again. He's going to make their country strong again. That's not what this text is saying. He says, we shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and the rest of the brothers will return to the people of Israel. That's just something different. Because what he's saying is that, once again, the king will be great, but there will no longer be one ethnic community. It'll be multi-ethnic. It will not be just the nation of Israel. It will be all the ends of the earth. It'll be a multi-ethnic community. This is the true king. This king will be the ruler over all, truly the ruler across the world. He's going to get rid of all evil, all death, all injustice, all poverty, everything. Why? How does he do this? In your call to worship, we read from Psalm 96. And Psalm 96 says that when God's royal and ruling presence returns to the earth, even the trees are going to sing. Even the trees will dance, it says. Now you think, this is a poem, so this is figurative, this is symbolic, this is a metaphor, right? And in a way it is, but look at the concept. Think about this. When a fish is, you know, you you catch a fish, you reel it in, and you have it on the ground, it starts to flop around. It's hardly doing what it was designed to do. It's weak. You see it gasping. It's almost sad, right? It's not meant for the ground. It was meant to be in water. In water, it does exactly what it's designed to do. In water, it's happy. It's not meant for the ground. In the water, it's powerful. In the water, it's graceful. In the water, it's beautiful. Out there on the ground, it can't do a single thing. If you take a seed, if you take an acorn, an acorn or a seed, if you, take, if you put it on a windowsill, it's just going to rot. It's just going to shrivel up. But do you realize inside that acorn, inside that seed, there's tremendous power. Everything that it needs to become a tremendous oak resides in that seed. But it needs to go deep. It needs to be planted. Inside the ground, what happens? It will start to realize its fullest potential. What is Psalm 96 saying? You... And I, the human race, we were created, first of all. God is the creator of all. We were created. And you know what that means? Now, if the secular people are correct, what these literary critics and the liberal philosophers, if they're really correct, then we're all here by accident. That means that nothing that you do today is ever going to matter. Forget about being remembered 2,000 years from now. They won't remember you in the next generation. It will be forgotten. And one day we will all enter into nothingness And nothingness will then enter into nothingness. And that means that everything we do today has no meaning, no purpose. You may feel love and you may understand that love is greater than hate. You may understand that you may feel love and know that that is good. And you may experience hate and know that that is bad. But if you're here by accident, then those feelings are really just chemical impulses that are hardwired into your system by some blind process of natural selection. 
So that ultimately what would happen, these chemicals um, are really enable people to just do exactly what they were designed to do in some ways, you know, which is to procreate and mate and just continue and extend the human condition on and on until that nothing, nothingness. And that's what we've been built, to be instinctive, to do. We can't help it. We can't control it. If anything, you're com- completely confined by this order, this natural order that exists in the world. Eventually, the earth is going to die and nobody's going to remember anything that you've ever done. It's a bleak picture. But if you, you know, if you were created, life is meaningless, but if you were created by someone, that means that Albert Camus was wrong. That means that Maria Rainier Rilke was wrong. That Friedrich Nietzsche was wrong. They were brilliant, but they were, and, and there may be glimpses of truth in what they're saying, but they were wrong. Because if you were created by someone, then you were created for somebody. If you were created by God, then you were created for God. If you were created by the king of all, then you were created for the king of all. You and I were not created to be our own lords. We were not created to be our own saviors. We were not created to be our own masters. Feel that way sometimes. Because we like to call our own shots. We like to make our own luck. But to make Jesus our king is to do what he calls us to do, to be completely obedient, to live according to the way we're designed. In every way, in every facet of our lives. That's what the law represents, actually, in the Old Testament. So that we can kind of return, not just into the Father's embrace, it's not to get into the Father's embrace, but to live as we were designed to live as we were meant to be, so that we could recognize our truest potential. Obedience is to recognize our truest potential. That the life that we live is not, you know, the Christian life is not about uh, having no master. Life is not about having no master, but it's about having the right master, the true master. And until you are, until you're true to your intended nature, you're just a fish on the ground. You're just an acorn or a seed on the windowsill. Until you recognize what you were built and designed to be, you are just, you're barely recognizing your full potential. Plunge yourself into the Lordship of Christ and you will get even closer to what you were built, to what you were meant to be. Psalm 96, it says, when the trees get into the royal, absolute, complete rule, the presence and the power and the lordship of the king of God, it says they're going to be able to sing. It says they're going to be able to dance. That means right now, as beautiful as they are, they are beautiful, as beautiful as they are, especially in the city. When you see a tree, it's beautiful. You ever walk in Dilworth Park, just recently opened this past week? Beautiful. They're going to put tons of trees in that park. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be amazing. But, you know, the thing is, it says that even as beautiful as they are, the world is still under a curse. And Jesus Christ has come to break that curse. As beautiful as they are, the trees one day will sing and they will dance. They will recognize, they will recognize their fullest potential. And they, created by God, will recognize their fullest potential. What of you? With all the potential and freedom that you get to experience today, what of you? You will get to recognize and experience the deepest fullest potential of who you are what about your freedom what about your joy what about your potential what about your options 
Jesus is the future king. And as he comes to redeem and restore, you, created for him, will recognize and experience your fullest potential in your intended home and resting place. And that's going to make everything that you experience today, all of our suffering today, a shadow, just a mere shadow of what we will have tomorrow. So again, if we're going to apply that, what does that mean? Don't make today's pursuits the end. Don't, don't labor to a point where you're pursuing to the point of brokenness, that end. You know, Jesus Christ didn't come to just give you some advice, just be some teacher or example for you that you can just model yourself after. That's going to lead to greater brokenness. If you're coming to Jesus just to improve your life a little bit more, oh, you're going to be broken. It's, you're going to experience an even greater brokenness. But remember that he is the future king who will come and restore and make all things new and make you whole. Rest in that. On one hand, he's the ancient king. But on the other hand, he's going to make everything today as if it were a mere a shadow or illusion. He is the future king. His promises are as well. He has made promises that, will, that have come to life and come to pass, and he has made promises that will come to pass about you. So we've talked about him being the ancient king. We've talked about him being the future king. What does it mean to make him our present king? What does it mean when we say he is our king today? All of life, then, is preparation and readiness for this ancient king who will come. That means we have to start today plunging our lives into the lordship of Christ. That means you have to take everything you've got and one by one, almost itemize, take an inventory and reorient that in light of this coming king. How do you do that? I'm going to recommend three ways that we do that. Three ways that we do that. One, you've got to believe. Two, you've got to obey. And lastly, you've got to trust. Believe, obey, trust. Okay, it doesn't spell anything, but. Okay, it doesn't spell anything. Not, it's not that cute. It's, it sounds simple, but it's actually very, very difficult. Okay, it's very, very simple, but these simple things can be very, very difficult. First, you've got to believe. You've got to believe in his death. The text says that this shepherd will stand, verse 4, and that he will shepherd over his flock. Jesus is the shepherd king who will come. Shepherds take control. Shepherds take charge. You know why? Because if you know anything about sheep, if you read ancient accounts about sheep and even modern accounts about sheep, they're just, they're just aimless. They just do whatever they want to do. So the shepherd constantly, literally has to arrest the sheep into control. Whatever the shepherd says goes. He's in charge. But the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus says. He protects the sheep from thieves, from wild animals. He's a good shepherd. That's why Jesus, when he's going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. You don't actually get, get your soul into the soul of Christ's lordship simply by saying, you know, you're big, I'm small, you're God, I'm not, so I guess I'm going to obey. You're never going to get your soul into the soul of Christ, the soil of Christ's lordship by saying that. That's not really surrender. You're still holding on to the things that you treasure most, don't you? That's what you do. This is what surrender is. It doesn't start simply by a view of God's naked power. It starts by being moved by his love. 
by his grace. Kingliness is deserving. Kingliness intimidates. But shepherd, sacrificial love, intimates. It warms. It puts you at ease. It disarms you. As a pastor, I hate walking into a room when the conversation is already taking place because they're having a conversation, then you walk into the room, they kind of look at you, and it's almost like they change the subject. You know, I don't know why they do that. I want to have a normal conversation like everyone else, but they come in and they kind of change the subject and, um, you know, they, they, they kind of arm themselves, you know. Um, and uh, that's, that's what happens when, uh, you know, a pastor walks into the room. But when you're shepherding somebody, it disarms. You connect with people. To, you know, what does it mean to disarm? It's to put your arms down. Right? Your arms are crossed. It's to put your arms down. It's to disarm. And, and that's what's going on. That's what the shepherd does. There's no defense. Why not trust him? Why not trust this good shepherd who loves, lays down his sheep, who's gracious and warm and inviting and welcoming and accepting and loving and gracious? And how many times have I said that? You know he loves you. You know he loves you. Until you're moved by that. You think about all the things that he's done. First, it begins with the cross. Think about what he's done. And then look at your life. Has he not been faithful? Until you believe that, until you look at that, until you understand his death, until you understand the beauty of what he's done, until you're moved into the beauty of what he's done, you will not actually begin to surrender to his lordship. What is the gospel? Jesus has saved the damsel in distress. You know, he went into the distress. The ancient has entered into the present. The infinity has become finite. The heir of all has become disowned, homeless, stripped naked, and lays his life down. He saved us from the mouth of lions, from the mouth of the wild animals, by entering in, by taking our place. On the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice. The shepherd has become the lamb. He became subject to others. The ruler has become subject. The king has become a servant. The king has become the shepherd who lays down his sheep. David, we're going to be studying David, is the shepherd king of Israel. Jesus, he points to Jesus, the ultimate shepherd king. We have to recognize that. We have to be moved by that. Jesus is the center of every great story. He makes all stories point to the greatest story, and this time it's true. It's good news. You have to believe that. That God's glory came through his death. That glory came because of his death. Believe, and there is hope. There's peace. You know why? Because God used the greatest person that ever lived. If he used his death to bring the greatest glory, surely he will use your suffering to bring it out glory, to bring it about. Believe. Secondly, obey. You've got to obey his word. You've got to read his word and you've got to obey it. In the end, you, know, you might be looking at Jesus as an example or as an inspiration, a lot of things, but he will not be king unless you make this commitment to whatever Jesus says in his word, I will do, whether I understand it, whether I like it, you know, whether, you know, whether I truly believe it. If you make that commitment, then he is king. If you haven't made that commitment, 
that I will do whatever he says, whether I understand it, whether or not I like it. If you haven't done that, if you haven't made that commitment, then you're still king, and he's not. Think about this, those of you who are parents. Parents have lots of demands. Oh, they're so demanding, right, to their children. Parents say, do this, obey me, I'm your father. Now, if you have a child that comes back and says, okay, I will obey you, I will submit to what you say, if, but if, you have to explain everything to me, and if it makes sense to me, then I will obey. I need to hear all the reasons why you want me to do this, then I will be glad to obey. What would you say in response as a parent? That's not obedience. I don't have to give you any reasons to obey. That's not obedience, because who's still in charge? If you rationally have to understand everything that God commands and why, then you're still king. You're still king. You're just listening to yourself. You're rationally renewing your own mind to believe, to understand. You know, as a father, you would say, I want you to obey me because I'm 40 and you're five. That's why I want you to obey. You know, because if you're five and you're living on the basis of the things that only make sense to you, you're going to be alive for like another hour and a half. That's what's going to happen, right? You know, you're not going to last. I'm trying to think, should I just say a day? Should I say half a day? This kid will not last more than another hour and a half. You know it. If you just let him do whatever he does, he's going to, you know, they're crazy. Kids are crazy, right? Pray for my nephew. He's crazy, okay? If you obey even though you don't agree, even though you don't understand everything, then the father has authority. But only, you only do what I say if it makes sense to you, then you still have authority. Friends, this past summer, I've gone through a tremendous, my wife and I, if you know anything about our family, um, we, we had experienced a miscarriage, a double miscarriage over the course of the last several months. It's tough. You sit here, and if you just sit here and try to make sense out of that, you know, you're, you're not going to succeed. You know, people are going to try to speak into you and tell you that, they, you know, but God is loving. If, they, if they're quick with the truth, they're going to tell you, oh, God is gracious, God is loving, God is faithful. Well, come on, think about it. If you have to understand why, then you're always going to be bitter because not everything is going to make sense. Not all suffering is going to make sense. And I rarely come up here and talk about my personal life in that way, but I'm, I'm telling you because I'm a sufferer and I'm a sinner. And guess what? You're just like me. You're a sufferer and you're a sinner. Right? You suffer right now and you sin right now. If you have to understand everything right now, you're still king and you will be bitter because you will not. But to obey, to submit, even in the hardest times, when I don't understand, when I don't want to understand, when I don't want that, when I don't like that, who is king? And isn't he faithful? It's very, very difficult for me to sit there and say, oh, I need to understand everything. You know why? Because if you know where I sit, over the last two years and seeing what he has done in this church, in this congregation, oh, God is faithful. God is good. God is amazingly faithful. How do we obey? How do we obey? Look at Jesus. He obeyed perfectly. He is king and he obeyed his father perfectly. And where did God send him? To the ultimate suffering to being disowned by him, to the cross, on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
The one time in the Gospels that Jesus does not refer to his own father as father. He calls him God, and yet he still calls him God. In his greatest suffering, he still says, God. And he's still worshiping. He's reciting Psalm 22. He's still worshiping the Father. If Jesus, who lost everything for you, still trusted, still obeyed, can you not still obey and trust? Can you not do that? Lastly, stop worrying. You got to trust. Okay, what would, you, what would worrying have to do with the, with the Lordship of Christ? It's got everything to do with the Lordship of Christ. Okay, what is worrying? You know what worrying is? I know this because I worry about everything. I worry about everything. I always wake up before my alarm when I worry about something. I can't stand that because I'm not a morning person, but I do that. It's saying this. Worrying is saying, I know how the universe is supposed to work. I've got it all planned out. I'm opening these new things. I'm entering into these new, and it's got to work out perfectly, and everything has to be lined up. And, and, and I, have, I have to control it. And history and life, as I know it, as I write it, has to turn out this way. My wife has to turn out this way. My kids have to turn out this way. My career path has to turn out exactly this way. I know what has to happen, but I've got a problem here. I don't know if God has the program I don't know if he's gotten the memo. I don't know if God's going to get it right. I'm honestly not sure if he's going to get it right because I have it all laid out. That's why I pray. That's why I pray. And, and I'm just worried. You know why I'm anxious? Because God is king. Deep inside I know. And I'm not sure if he's going to follow the way I want him to follow. He's going to get it wrong. I just know it. I've seen glimpses of it in my past because things have happened that are not the way I like it to happen. He's going to get it wrong. And so I know in the end I have no control, and so I'm worried. I'm just really worried, and I'm just going to pout, and I'm just going to be resentful. But if you say, you are king, and spiritually speaking, I'm five. You leave me alone for an hour, you let me alone to my plans for an hour, I'm screwed. I'm dead. And I'm probably giving myself more credit than I deserve. I'm not even five, spiritually speaking. You have to look up and you have to say, I am so foolish. You know why you know you're, you're foolish right now? I can say that as a pastor to you. You are foolish, I am foolish. You know why? Think about it. Ten years from now, you're going to look back at decisions that you've made ten years before and you're going to say, oh my gosh, I was so foolish. You know what that means? Ten years from now, you're going to look back at yourself today and say you were foolish, which means right now, you were a fool. Right now, you are foolish, Right? If you can look up and say, I'm so foolish. I don't know anything. I just want things. I just worship things. It gets me into trouble. You are a king, but you are a loving king. You are a shepherd. You take charge, but you're a loving shepherd. You're a sacrificial shepherd. Then I got to stop. I got to just trust. Jesus Christ knew exactly He had certainty. He knew exactly what would happen to him. At Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed to the point of death. He worried. He's looking at what's going to happen to him. But why did he do that? You know why? To take away from you the one actual thing that can actually ruin you. He suffered it. 
He knew what was going to happen. And do you know, he did it gladly for you. Read Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. He said, he will be satisfied. When he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, it means a lot of things. But one of the things that you know he meant is, it's done. It's over. I did it. The transaction has been made. The price has been paid. I've done it. The one thing that can ruin you, truly, he had taken on. So you never have to, all the things that you suffer then have meaning. I don't want to denigrate that, but there's meaning. You may not understand the meaning ever, but there's meaning. You can trust that. He will get it right. And he's the coming king. He's the future king. He will get it very right once and for all. Will you trust him? He's the ancient king. Will you trust him? He is the future king. Will you trust him? Today, will you make him your present king? Let's pray.